All right. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for um, joining again today for another discussion that we've been doing on um, looking at trying to protect and preserve constitutional rights amid this um, pandemic. Uh, I'm Jake with the Project and Government Oversight, and I'm really pleased today um, for a conversation we're going to be having on what is one of probably the most challenging and difficult issues um, that we've confronted um, on the in this area of how to both protect individual safety um, in this time of crisis and also preserve uh, constitutional rights, which is looking at uh, criminal court proceedings and pretrial detention. So I'm really pleased today to be joined by uh, Sarah Turberville, who is the director of the Constitution Project at POGO, where she oversees the full range of constitutional rights issues that our organization works on. Professor Pam Metzger, the director of the Sean Criminal Justice Reform Center and professor, <clears throat> sorry, professor of law at the SMU Demon School of Law in Dallas, Texas, and Sharice Fano Burdine, executive partner at the Pretrial Justice Institute, which works to promote safe, fair, and effective pretrial justice forms. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, guys. Um, so I think you know we'll probably just proceed with um, audience questions as we go along. Um, if you're in the audience, uh, please either you can send a question to me and I can read it out. Or if you use the raise your hand function, I can um, direct um, the discussion to you for you to um, post a question directly to our panelists. Um, but first, just to kick off the discussion, um, I want to start out with just a question myself to each of the panelists. So, um, Sharice, if you could just um, kick us off, what are the full range of policies and actions we're seeing throughout the country in states and localities um, that are trying to address pretrial detention amid the various issues caused by this pandemic? Sure, Jake, thanks for the question and hi everybody. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, prior to the pandemic, uh, most jails in the country on average had about two thirds of their jail population were pretrial, uh, were in a pretrial detention status. Um, and the range of those individuals were, uh, could be anything from those charged with very low level misdemeanors uh, all the way up through serious felonies. And predominantly they were in there because they couldn't afford to post a bond. So among the range of things that we're seeing actually include reforms that we've been talking about for a while. So we're seeing across the country an expanded use of citations in lieu of custodial bookings, which is one way to, uh, to reduce the number of people going into uh, the jails who would then, could then get stuck there uh, with bond amounts that they couldn't post. Um, we are also seeing some, what you might call expedited releases of individuals who may have otherwise been eligible for uh, what many jurisdictions call as on your own recognizance or personal bonds, something that didn't require them to post uh, secured money in order to be released. Unfortunately, so those are actually both good things. Uh, unfortunately, it's not uniform across the country and it certainly isn't uniform even within any particular state or even within any, any particular county, as you see variations even from judge to judge um, based on what they're willing to do in their courts. And then finally, what we're seeing are a lot of individuals being, um, um, we're just seeing folks being put out on supervision conditions that um, don't seem to be commiserate with um, the, um, I hate to use the word risk they pose because most people pose barely any risk at all. Um, but they, but people are being over-supervised, I guess I'll say that. So we're seeing some releases to electronic monitoring go up in a lot of places. Um, 
uh, and then in, certainly in some places we're just seeing almost a, um, a clamping down on pretrial detention under the guise of, well, they're safer in here than they would be out there. So it's a full range, uh, ranging from optimism to sheer pessimism. All right, um, thank you. That's, that's, I think, a great place to start us off. Um, Professor Metzger, to what degree do jurisdictions filing formal, are they filing formal criminal complaints right now, indictments, um, and what, what are the solutions really when grand juries can't be convened or um, you can't have normal court proceedings that you would need to do for uh, prosecutions? Are, are there actually being individuals that are held without formal charges against them or um, is that legally impossible? It is, in fact, legally possible. It was before the pandemic. So, so to clarify here, we can think about charging in two phases, right? There's what the police allege when you're arrested. That's like an informal charge. And then there's the um, formal commitment by the prosecution to go forward, typically by way of indictment or information. Um, states are all over the map anyway on how long prosecutors have, but in places like Louisiana, um, you can go to the 16th Judicial District there, which is St. Martin, St. Mary's parishes, Iberia, and they'll tell you that the governor's suspension of legal deadlines means they have an indefinite period of time in which to file charges. Normally, it would be 60 days for a felony who's in custody, 45 on a misdemeanor in custody. Um, certainly, best practices being urged um, in most places are prompt charging decisions by prosecutors, prompt review, and um, expedited discovery as well, because um, it's very difficult for defense lawyers and investigators to get out and do that work. Um, but we're seeing incredibly long periods of time, um, and in places like Texas, where the governor has held um, this litigation, where the governor has moved forward with an incredibly restrictive anti-release bill for anyone who's ever been convicted of a crime that involved even a threat of violence, no matter how long ago, um, the charging deadlines are also being pushed in that direction. So it's, it's a, I think, a very troubling phenomenon. It calls attention to a problem that we should have been paying attention to anyway, if that makes sense. Sarah, with all the competing concerns and dangers um, that are created in this environment where you, know, you have to think about constitutional rights, about general public health, about the public health of individuals that are involved in trials, um, whose voices should we be worried most about getting left out of the discussion and who should we be most vigilant about trying to listen to more as we think about these various risks? Well, I think inherently people that are detained, whether it be in jail, in prison, or in immigration detention, um, are going to be, you know, those are the most, some of the most vulnerable people, if not the most vulnerable people in our society amid a pandemic. Um, their access to information is limited. It's probably, it, it is in a lot of places even more limited now than it was before. Um, and of course, uh, jails and detention facilities and prisons are just ripe for uh, rampant spread of this disease. Um, you've got people living in close quarters. They've got no ability to socially distance. Um, they have very little under best circumstances have um, not great access to healthcare goods like they, like and I and I'm meaning things at a basic minimum like soap um, and then you've got a disease that is highly transmissible and and so I think that you know you know there's an expression that you know how you judge a society is how, how it treats its most vulnerable and here we've got 
people, particularly those that are being detained pretrial, who have not even been convicted of a crime, um, and who are um, subject to the whim of, of our decision makers, and it's completely incumbent upon the legal community to sort of force the issue and make uh, judges and other political decision makers uh, do the right thing by them. Great, and um, I just want to kind of open up the discussion by by following up on that. Um, so I'm curious for kind of getting the whole panel's opinion on um, what everyone in in various positions should be doing to try to remedy those concerns that Sarah just laid out, whether it's the courts themselves, government, um, you know, advocates, individuals in the press who are covering this. Um, basically, what what steps do we need to, in the immediate term, try to remedy? Um, to start making sure that there's more accountability for those issues. So I, I'm going to jump in here and say the most, well, the thing I see most commonly omitted, the biggest failure I've seen is the failure to include the defense bar in these conversations. There is a major national organization that initially produced a checklist for agencies about what to do, criminal justice partners in COVID. Um, they've got sheriffs, police, um, prosecutors, prisons, pretrial supervision, probation, not a public defender on the list or a defense attorney on the list. Um, and I think the only way we're going to know the stories that Sarah was talking about, the stories of people who are incarcerated, the stories of their families, is if we bring defense lawyers to the table. I think defense lawyers have to be involved in conversations um, about all of these pieces. Um, and it begins with pretrial release and the kind of over-supervision that Sharice is talking about. It extends into the difficulty in preserving evidence and discovery. Um, given the fact that people are sick, people are moving, people are dying, evidence is disappearing. Um, and then these very important conversations about these very lengthy detentions of people who may not ever ultimately be charged. And I'll, I'll add actually um, something probably we should have mentioned before about things that we're seeing across the country, which is, um, and, and, and of course, there's no data being kept on the uh, prevalence of any of the things that we're talking about. There will be unlikely to be a national data set that will reflect what we've all done during this uh, pandemic. But we are also hearing stories about uh, offering people the opportunity to go ahead and plead guilty in order to get out. And so that will challenge the concerns around um, uh, time to filing or time incarcerated. They're just offering folks. So if we were worried about coercive pleas prior to this, um, the opportunity to plead in order to avoid contracting uh, what could be a fatal disease um, uh, is something that we have to watch for. Um, and I think Pam's absolutely right about uh, defense attorneys and making sure that we get actual um, stories out. You probably saw in the Marshall Project recently, um, yesterday, I think, the day before, a uh, story about sort of whether or not court proceedings that are being done by Zoom um, are going to be open to the public. And so much as you could have gone and sat and done court watching in a first appearance court, now if those uh, hearings are being conducted by Zoom, um, there's a great level of disparity about open and access, open access and transparency. Um, the flip of that is if we have, if we were recording those, even if just to preserve for later, it would be an immense data set um, that would be available for um, for research. So um, we can't overlook the fact that they will use the the COVID issue um, to to just ask people to go ahead and plead uh, in order to get out. Yeah. 
And, and I'll add that there are, you know, there's a number of decision makers along various points here in the system. And so um, in a place like Texas, Pam can probably speak to this better that, than I can, but you had a situation where sheriffs in some jurisdictions were actually trying to reduce arrest, trying to reduce the pretrial population amid COVID. And then the governor came in with this executive order that turned all of that upside down and in fact is having the effect of increasing pretrial detention. Um, then you've got individual judges that can make, you know, a judge sitting as, as Cherise said in one courthouse in one jurisdiction might be doing something differently from a judge in the same jurisdiction. Um, and that there can be some real, I mean, there are, in places across the country, we're seeing some orders that, like, you know, I just read in Massachusetts, for example, there was a court that ordered um, a sort of mass releases, creating a rebuttable, rebuttable presumption of release for defendants who are being, um, who, for basically all defendants except those who are being detained on a no bond status, which usually correlates to it being a very serious, probably violent felony for which they are. Um, you know, being detained pretrial. And, you know, that is a, a more effective way to do this, right? I mean, waiting for individual lawyers um, to be able to come in and file suit on behalf of specific clients is absolutely, and it is impractical, um, besides the fact that a lot of people, if they've recently been detained, um, their right to counsel at bail hearing um, is usually non-existent. Um, so we've we've got a number of issues with a, a great degree of discretion that is afforded across the justice system right now. Um, it seems like some of the states that have orders coming from their state supreme courts that you know give the lower courts some marching orders, um, assuming that that state supreme court order is a good one, um, can have a, a much better and far-reaching effect to protect people's safety. So if I can just follow up on something that each each of y'all said, first of all, I, I a thousand percent want to agree with Sharice about the um, people being encouraged to plead guilty um, in order to get out early. Um, that's coercive at the best of times. It's something that we need to be mindful of and we need to be thinking about what it means to give a voluntary plea under those circumstances. But there are a couple other things I wanted to highlight. One, there are some efforts to gather research on local policies because the data there is really important. Um, we are now crowdsourcing with law students in an effort to gather county level data on what people are doing on COVID-19. We have data on five states already up on our website um, and we're working our way, God help us, through every one of the 50 states and every, at every county level. Um, to gather as many of these policies as we can. Um, we're launching later this week a page just devoted to small tribal and rural communities and the resources that they need in COVID and criminal justice. Um, on the point of technology, I just want to highlight that there's also an enormous risk coming, which is that, um, that we're at risk of video proceedings being the new normal. Um, I think one of the things we really have to be very concerned about is we know very little about the efficacy of, of Zoom or any other kind of video technology. There are very few studies about how it impacts judicial proceedings, but the ones that exist, there's one out of Chicago in the late 90s, strongly suggest that outcomes are far worse for criminal defendants um, when, they, when they appear remotely. 
Um, and yet here we are massively moving pretrial um, decisions that are critical, maybe even life and death decisions to a technology that we know very little about. There's an enormous risk, I think, that at the end of this road, judges are going to look around, lawyers are going to look around and say, oh, that wasn't so bad. We can, we can keep doing this by Zoom. It won't be so messy. We don't need to bring people over from the jail, et cetera. And I think we have to be very vigilant um, to make sure that this doesn't harden into a new normal. Um, I also think that, that in, in terms of thinking about statewide orders and local practice, um, you know, it's worth noting that some of this really depends very heavily on how much local law enforcement have authority. Um, whether under a local bond schedule or under local rules to make their own decisions about release. Um, so in a place like Texas, you had the governor restrict what are normally local prerogatives um, to the detriment of individual defendants. Um, so we have a question from the audience from uh, Douglas Berman. Um, is traditional court reporting such as transcripts getting done in this, these type of virtual proceedings and might reporting agencies be able to make recordings of proceedings um, to help deal with the various issues that have been discussed? And um, uh, Sharice, why don't you kick us off? Well, I mean, I assume court transcripts are still being maintained um, for the record. Uh, one of the differences, um, at least in my sense, maybe Pam or Sarah can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, there's a difference between watching a discussion that happens that then results in a decision and a recording of the decision. And so if a transcript merely, merely reports um, what the judge decided, you lose a lot of the value of court watching because what you would want to see is the dialogue that happened. What did the prosecutor ask for? What did the defense uh, retort with? And so um, in terms of being able to try to map out um, the process that led to a decision, you'll miss all of that richness, um, which is really where some of the culture change uh, excavation needs to be done. Um, uh, so that's, that's my answer to that, Jake. Um, Jake, I'd also say that this is a place where, again, we have to be um, thoughtful about what's happening in different parts of the country. So, Doug, I think there are court reporters, often virtually, and for those people that are using um, real-time technology the way they do in federal courts, there's going to be very little difference in the reporting. It's what Cherise said. You missed the interpersonal richness. But I want to emphasize that um, in, in rural and tribal and small-town communities, um, it may be physically impossible. They may not have the broadband um, to make these proceedings available when they go forward. Um, they may be working by telephone. And some of those, I think we are at risk of losing what happens um, unless we are careful to go back to the lawyers and the courts and ask, because I know there are places um, in rural communities where they're doing bond hearings, for example, by telephone. Um, and I, there's not a court reporter in those proceedings to the best of my knowledge. I mean, I'm sure there are in some places, but I know in other places there really aren't. So um, I'd like to follow up on kind of the topic we've been discussing a bit, which is the risks of whether for trials or just other criminal proceedings, um, the risks of doing these events virtually. Um, so I was hoping um, you guys could just elaborate a little bit on what, what are the specific risks to that? What, what do defendants um, potentially lose both in terms of their formal legal rights, be it constitutional otherwise, and what are kind of just some of the specific practical examples of why this might be bad both in the short term as a method for dealing with this and as was discussed you know like something that could become the new normal if we're not vigilant about it how long do you have <laughs> I, I think i think that that 
you can think about it on a variety of axes. I mean, you can think about it in terms of, as Sharice described, missing the richness of what actually goes on in a courtroom, right? That's part of why court watching has such value. But I think there are very significant concerns here about what goes on in the attorney-client relationship. Typically, um, in video proceedings, you have the lawyer with the judge in a courtroom and the defendant remote, which is bad enough. Um, here, we're actually going to have people, I think, usually in three different locations or four locations if you add in the prosecutor, right, or probation officer, pretrial supervision. What you miss are the opportunities to have private conversations with the client, the opportunity to actually confer with the client while the judge is speaking, the opportunity to acquire information. The other thing you miss that that's I, I guess I would call a third axis, which is which is the human piece of how judges make their decisions. Um, I have a very strong intuition, having practiced as a defense lawyer for a bazillion years, that it's easier to send someone to jail when they're a picture on a screen than when they're a human being in front of you and they have their family sitting behind them and you can see them as a person. Um, this has been many of the, this is the theory behind which a lot of people object to having, for example, a magistrate take a guilty plea when the judge is going to do the sentence, right? You want the person who's, who's making decisions about whether you are in custody or out to identify with you on a very fundamental human level. That's lost. The defendant also loses the opportunity to look at documents. Um, anything that's brought into the courtroom, and, and if people are in multiple virtual locations, there's very little access to a common record unless you have um, someone who's particularly skilled with screen sharing, and there have been a, decisions made in advance about what documents are going to be um, loaded up and ready to be shared. Um, so I think you miss an enormous amount, and I understand that courts love this in many instances. It's convenient. It's clean. Um, there aren't deputies bringing inmates clanking up through the halls. Um, but that's precisely why it should be happening in person. And I would add that there is an, another risk here that is fairly novel. Um, but the truth is that we're all struggling to adapt to this new reality where our entire professional lives have been moved online. I feel like in, or I, I know that in many respects, the the justice system is probably more ill-equipped than most other components uh, or, you know, or most other elements um, uh, of our government to be able to handle some of these issues because as for all the reasons Pam described, um, you know, most of the, we, we issue, um, you know, virtual hearings because of the effect it can have on people's constitutional rights. Um, and so there's also, an element of this where the justice system isn't particularly good at it either. And then there is an element of, you know, I think we need to be very concerned about the security of some of the um, technologies that we're using, particularly if they're going to be used for uh, the justice system. Um, you know, there's a good bit of work underway related to concerns about misinformation and disinformation when it comes to uh, judicial decision making. And, you know, in the same way that foreign and domestic actors alike have, have tried to um, interfere with our electoral processes, they can use the very same mechanisms to sort of, to, you know, to try to interfere with the decision making that is happening among judges. Um, or the correspondence that happens between, you know, a, a judge and their law clerks and, and other people that are sort of, you know, critical to the decision-making point in, in a case. 
And so I think that's another layer that is, is missed that, that we need to be thinking critically about. So I just want to add sort of two things that maybe I could just wrap up into one, which is that, um, and at the risk of sounding like my mother, if you had only done what we told you to do in the first place, everything would be fine. So um, uh, I'm going to take you to just sort of a, a version of what it could have looked like if we, if we were actually doing sort of the pretrial part of this, the pretrial justice part of this, sort of in a more correct fashion, um, where we'd be. Um, and that is that uh, um, as opposed to all of the, the hoops and hurdles and jumps we have to make now to try to get to a place where we're trying to get people out who really don't belong in period um, before they have been convicted of a crime. Um, if we were down to uh, a very small detention net that uh, was confined to people charged with serious violent offenses and we were only dealing with hearings, um, much like in DC and New Jersey, where there were detention hearings that needed to be had um, on individuals. And, you know, at best, that's maybe 10% of the arrested population at most are people charged with serious violent crime. And everyone else would have, would have either been given a citation or um, uh, would either have been given a citation or would have been released after booking. Um, and in that environment, we wouldn't be, ha even though I understand that we're all in an online virtual um, sort of space now, you could have private meetings between an attorney and his or her client um, by Zoom. They could just be talking to each other or phone calls. Um, and we wouldn't be trying to sort of figure out now how to, uh, you know, reconnoiter ourselves to, to, to take essentially what's a broken process and automate it. If you've ever done any business automation of any kind, the first rule is you simply do not take the pieces of paper that you used to use and turn them into electronic forms. You go through a business process redesign. And in this space, um, uh, I think it'll be a mistake and something we should watch for that the justice system will simply want to take what it was doing and figure out how to do it online. But even that, I would say this, in a place where the culture already was around maximizing pretrial liberty, the use of phone calls in the middle of the night from the police precinct to a judge on call mm -hmm. to effectuate someone's release from the precinct was, has been happening for decades um, in certain places. And so I don't, I don't want us also to go too far into thinking that um, we're gonna override culture with technology. If the culture's in place, the technology can facilitate if the culture already is dispositive towards uh, pretrial liberty. Yeah. I just wanted to add one thing to that, which just occurred to me, and we've been talking about this in, in criminal defense circles as well. Um, just one very small point, which is to the extent that folks are reliant on those phone calls, right? Um, it, it's another point of concern is um, when those phone calls and that technology is the exclusive way for there to be attorney-client communications. Um, the telephones, the calls that, that Charisse is describing, um, when they come from the precinct, um, they're often monitored if there's something that an inmate is using or in the sheriff's department or in a jail. And um, defense lawyers need to be demanding um, in this technological moment that those calls are unmonitored and not accessed. We know that that's not a 100% guarantee. We've seen the lawsuits out of places like Leavenworth 
um, the New Orleans Parish Prison, but uh, the premium placed on attorney-client communications is important, um, and, and we should again be vigilant about that. Um, another question from the room. Um, Professor Metzger, you mentioned that indefinite detention um, could be looming in parishes um, like those described in, in Louisiana. Are there um, other jurisdictions where the, we've seen this happening or it could be happening? Yeah, so there are um, nationwide, there are a number of states that actually have no legal limit to how long you can be held waiting for a formal charge to be filed. So this is actually not a new phenomenon. Um, I wish I could tell you that Louisiana was the longest period you can wait at 60 days for a formal charge. It's not. Um, so yes, it's happening elsewhere. It's happening in the same places that it's always happened. Um, there are places like the District of Columbia where there's a very long window, but prosecutors don't use it. Right? They, they turn cases around rel in a relatively timely manner. Um, there are places like Georgia where you can be a juvenile in custody for 180 days, and if they don't charge you, you can get another 90 for good cause. And after that, um, if they still haven't filed an indictment, you get to go to juvenile court. Um, so I think that the, the charging window has always been lengthy and available. It's that I think you're going to see jurisdictions that have previously moved quickly be tempted in places to slow down. And in some states like Louisiana, essentially be given a, a, a sort of a, a gubernatorial blessing to do it, um, which is the way some prosecutors are taking it. So it, it's not new. Um, and I, I wish I had a better answer, but I think we're going to be watching on a state by state and county by county or parish by parish basis to see how prosecutors respond on these matters. Um, kind of follow up in along those lines. I mean, we, we talked a lot about the various issues um, and concerns going on here. Um, when we were talking about these various problems, I mean, I'm curious, where did the solutions need to be get directed? Because it seems, you know, we're talking about a lot of things that are within the authority of the courts, might be within the authority of police departments, with executives, lawmakers. Um, some, it feels like there's overlap. So. I mean, when people are worrying about these issues and how to deal with them, where, where should they be kind of directing those efforts and questions about what the government's going to do? Well, one thing, I mean, just looking at legal remedies, um, I, I think something that our, that we have to, to sort of wrap our hands around is that COVID really presents a bit of a conundrum about what the appropriate mode of relief is going to be um, for those who are detained, whether it be pre-trial or post-trial. Um, although I think there are certain sort of compelling issues with respect to the pre-trial context that are not necessarily there in the post-trial one. Um, so typically there's, there's sort of two routes that one could go to challenge the legality of their detention. Um, so one is habeas relief. And this is where, you know, usually you file a habeas writ if you're you're challenging the very legality of your detention, right? That you have been convicted of something that is no longer a crime. You have, um, your, your trial was unconstitutional in some respect, and so therefore you are deserving of relief. Um, in the alternative, um, typically conditions of confinement, right? Like how the actual circumstances of somebody's detention um, is usually pursued through a, like a, a civil rights action that for, you know, is usually called like a 1983 action. Um, and 
this might be something that feels the most analogous to the scenario when we're worried about COVID transmission. Um, there's, you know, a standard about the government being deliberately indifferent to medical need and, um, and then and all of this analysis relates to, to the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. The reason that I think COVID presents a, a novel issue with either of these remedies is that, in short, what was once a constitutional condition of confinement is not anymore because of COVID and its high rate of trans, transmission um, and how easily it's trans, transmitted. Um, again, inability to social distance, poor access to healthcare, um, you know, as one, I read one petition that said, essentially this deadly disease turns the ordinary conditions of confinement into potentially lethal threats of illness. So an overnight stay at a jail suddenly becomes a potential death sentence. Um, and typically courts, you know, erect a lot of procedural hurdles and things like that when either one of these remedies is being pursued. But I think because of the unique nature of COVID, um, and the threat that it presents, not just to the, those who are confined, but the other individuals working in the facilities as well, um, that, that courts are going to probably have to engage in a new analysis, frankly, in, in dealing with, with this pandemic. I mean, I, I try to think about, sometimes I, I think in terms of analogies and, um, you know, here we are, we're in the basement of a building that's flooding. And the question is, you know, there are, should should as should as many of us as possible jump in with buckets and try to be scooping out the water? Should somebody be swimming and trying to find out where the leak is coming from? Um, and in some ways, it feels like by the time we're using the buckets, it's too late. And and a lot of what feels like uh, the hopelessness from some of us is feeling like we're, we're, we're stuck in the basement with the buckets. I think that the police really are where um, where we swim up and uh, sort of put our finger in the dam. In places where the cops have literally said, we are no longer, and I think in California, didn't the, governor, didn't the governor's actual language say, no more unnecessary arrests or the judicial council? I mean, just even think about that phrase, no unnecessary arrests. So if, they were unnecess if they're unnecessary now, why were they necessary you know, two months ago prior to COVID? So if what we're talking about is a way to prevent all of the needed remedies, legal and otherwise, that we have to do once somebody gets booked into a jail. Um, and again, uh, before you know, I get na nasty tweets, I'm not talking about somebody who's charged with standing in front of a police officer and, and shooting another person. I'm literally talking about the 90% or 85% of arrests in the country, which are for misdemeanor charges and, and non-violent felonies, which is also something I hope we talk about in this, is that one of the sort of as a caveat, the rhetoric and the narrative around nonviolent versus violent is being, it's almost being sort of grasped onto as a, as a lifeboat by even reformers like myself who are thinking about ways to try to dislodge culture and saying, well, just at least give us those that you consider, quote, nonviolent, um, which is, you know, uh, which is something that I really think that I hope this narrative, I hope that this pandemic also begins to try to challenge our notion of who, who gets the moniker, um, violent versus nonviolent. But I really think if we could be focusing our efforts on law enforcement um, and, and make much better use of, um, you know, deflection and or just 
I hate to use the word decriminalization because some people don't like it, but if, if we literally look at things that are uh, sort of circumstantial charges, trespassing, um, you know, other things that we shouldn't be filling our jails with, um, there's a great opportunity here to work with the law enforcement. Um, let me also add to, to both points that were made. One of the alarming things that, most alarming things I've seen is recently is that when North, I'm sorry, when Rhode Island recently did some prisoner releases, they had about 2,400 people in prison. It's a unified court system, a unified prison system. Um, it was a big deal when they released 50 some odd. And um, one of the criteria for being released was you had to be able to demonstrate that you had some place you could go where you could quarantine for 14 days. Um, which is sort of mind-boggling when you're talking about people who are, are jammed into a prison system, have no way to quarantine there, and are typically sent home with, you know, $10 and a bus ticket. Um, so I think we have to be vigilant that on the back end, we're not setting up unreasonable criteria. On the front end, Sharice is a thousand percent right. Um, the, 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 the opportunity is there. I think we have to not, um, you know, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered, right? We have to be careful that we're not going... Uh, too far, too fast, but we have to be really clear about what we're thinking in terms of releases. We have to resist falling into the trap that um, the Federal Bail Reform Act has set and that was copied by so many other states, which is that every drug distribution charge is considered a violent crime by statute. Um, the, the rhetoric has no relationship to the reality, um, and we need to be careful with that. We also really should keep our eye on the fines and fees ball. Um, there's a place in Louisiana that's um, that set up a temporary drive-through court. Um, and one of the things is, is that you can pay your fines and fees there. Um, and so if there wasn't a moment before that exposed how unbelievably unstable and unreliable the user pay system is, and I would argue Louisiana should know that better than anyone after Katrina, um, we are going to see in the aftermath of COVID-19 um, a, a real vacuum in resources, um, financial resources for court systems that have relied heavily on fines and fees. And we, we should be thinking now um, about what the court system's response is going to be and how we're going to handle it. Because if we are successful in downsizing, um, that has consequences for people who live and work in the system. And we need to be prepared for that as well. Great. Um, I want to actually just hop in for follow-up on that point, I mean, since, um, you know, there's obviously not only a huge array of issues going on right now, but we're probably going to continue to face new issues that we can't even think of right now. So, um, you know, within this area, as this pandemic goes on and as we recover from it, so what less specific policies, but what overarching principles should guide us as we start to take on new issues and issues that we can't even think of right now at this point in the discussion? Well, I feel like Cherise sort of hit the nail on the head with reducing pressure on the, the detained population by reducing arrests and detentions. Um, that will enable us to better grapple with the, the issues presented by those who are detained um, and those whose particular circumstances, whether it be relating to the, um, you know, the, the charges that they're detained pursuant to or, or something else, it'll enable us to better sort of manage that to some degree if there's not this enormous sort of continued influx. Um, and so with that, I think we really do have to be focusing on the jurisdictions that are engaged and really sort of, um, you know, unhelpful at best practices um, that do not seem to be informed by, by science. 
um, and are having an adverse impact on the detained population. Uh, so I would I would put that front and center. The other thing I think that's just worth mentioning before the other panelists can jump in is that jails in particular are really poorly suited to be managing their populations during a pandemic because they are inherently places where the population is transient, right? Like they're not they're not created for people to serve out long sentences and therefore would under the best case scenario have um, structures and mechanisms in place to support the health and well-being of the people who are incarcerated there um, and you know and, and Charisse can certainly talk about this probably for <laughs> ad infinitum but um, you know jails do typically do a much worse job of taking care of their vulnerable populations than, um, than a prison would, because they're simply not built to be holding people. So when you're looking at something like what Pan's talking about, of like possible indefinite detention, which in and of itself is something that I think should really make people's hair stand on end, um, but that indefinite detention in a jail is, is really concerning. I think I'll just focus on one, um, which is that, uh, you know, um, and again, not trying to sound like my mother looking at the past saying I told you so, but, but if, if we really had been centering voices of impacted people all of this time, we would not find ourselves in this particular situation. Um, and so, um, as difficult as it is for some of us professionally to watch the news and to hear about the variety of policies and practices that we're experiencing across the country from our professional colleagues in the legal field, um, the pain and torment uh, that we read on listservs and in other places um, from families who are terrified uh, of their loved ones um, trying to survive the pandemic inside. Um, these jails um, is really, um, and then the detention centers for ICE is really troubling. I think if um, simple values, Jake, like dignity and humanity, um, uh, you know, tens of millions of people watch Tiger King and are devastated at the treatment of the big cats. And yet we're watching, um, I think in Ohio, the data is now that the vast, uh, a good majority of the cases in Ohio are actually cases of COVID in prison um, at a pace that far uh, surpasses the general population in Ohio of, of um, people testing positive. So it's, it's just odd to me that we're more concerned about the big cats than we are about um, human beings in these facilities. So this is really for me just, I mean, you know, it's a, it shines a huge spotlight on what our values are. Um, and I think it could give us a really big opportunity to reorient. Um, it is, um, we have had natural disasters in the past that we have thought would change the justice systems in one location or another. And uh, this is something that seems, I know it's being disproportionately felt across the country, but it is also being disproportionately felt by people of color. Okay, so um, yes, yes, and yes. And I guess I just had a couple other notes. One is, you know, after Katrina in, in 2005, 
uh, most criminal justice systems looked at what had happened and said, we're going to create a continuity of operations plan. Right. So everybody has a coop. Um, apparently, we don't have coops for pandemics. Um, the last, I think, um, major publication that come out about pandemics and criminal justice systems was like early 2000s. Um, so we, we're obviously going to have an opportunity to rethink what a coop plan means. Um, second thing we're going to have to do, which again should have been done all along, we've been saying it all along, is we have to think about criminal justice as a public health issue. Um, back in the late 1980s when HIV AIDS was first sweeping the country, um, part of what um, Defender and pretrial services offices and some courts and some prisons did was say, look, this is a public health problem that's simply rampant in our jails and we need to be able to talk about it and understand it. Um, this requires us to, to really focus a public health lens on jails and prisons in a way we have not done before because of the method of contagion, right? It, the pandemic creates a different kind of public health conversation. Um, the, the third thing I wanna mention is I wanna go back to following the money. Um, this is gonna require, I think, if we're successful in doing what Sharice has described and reevaluating, do we need these arrests? Do we need this many people in prison? Uh, we're going to have to think about economic realignment um, for people who work in corrections unions, for people who support prison staff, for people in you know, small towns that have been built up around prison complexes that have been exported to rural communities. We're going to have to think long and hard about the way this affects people who work in the system or the political pressure um, to I've seen that she's frozen. She's frozen. Sarah, you want to pick up her thread? We probably, either of us could, I'm sure, continue that train of thought. No, I mean, I, I, I think that's, that's completely right. Um, and another piece of this that I, I, I don't know if folks are necessarily attuned to, but um, the, the idea that we continue to pack you know, what is it, 10 and a half million people a year that go in and out of our jails, um, that many people into a, a detention facility or uh, a jail, that that, um, that has consequences for those communities because, again, these are not places where people stay for long periods of time. And so inherently, um, you know, during a public health emergency like this, uh, there will be people who have COVID-19 who return to their communities. And, um, you know, the, the more that we are able to, to shrink the number of people then that are going to be able to, that, that are going to go back home and sort of transmit that way, um, you know, the, the better off we'll be. Okay, um, other questions in the room? Um, should we always default in terms of deference to defendants um, on various issues that you're talking about? And if so, how do we deal with um, the type of potential course of action that that might entail? And I imagine you know, this is something that could come up for um, whether it's plea bargaining that's been discussed a bit, um, you know, having in-person trial proceedings, um, delaying trial proceedings. Um, I guess just on, on the whole, how, how do we make sure that if we are being deferential to defendants' wishes when they waive rights or ask for conditions, um, that it doesn't lead to kind of more coercive responses on a system-wide level. I mean, I I'm, I can jump in here first. Uh, you know, the when you're looking at pretrial detention, first of all, um, 
the the law favors constitutional the constitution and state law favors pretrial release now that may not what be what happens in practice but under ordinary circumstances it is meant to be the carefully limited exception um, and defendants are not to be denied bail um, unless they pose a you know or not to be detained unless they pose a clear and convincing flight and safety risk um, and there's a variety of mechanisms and you know again this is a place where Sharice can speak to it more you know artfully than I can that um, can be used by jurisdictions to ensure that people um, appear for their court hearings uh, without depriving them of their liberty and in the mid of pandemic also subjecting them to a potentially lethal disease that they would not otherwise contract um, you know, our entire criminal justice system is meant to be organized around the protection of individual rights and defendants' rights. And so um, what I think happens in a crisis like this is that the, and this has happened during Hurricane Katrina, it wasn't the storm that necessarily caused the justice system to completely break down in the, in the city. It was instead the accumulation of problems over the course of years that the storm basically brought to the surface. And I think we're seeing the same thing with this pandemic. We're seeing unnecessary, um, you know, we're beginning to see how unnecessary some arrests are and how unnecessary some detentions are. Uh, and I think that's probably gonna flow throughout the entire system as, as we watch this um, unfold. So, you know, we've been trying to find silver linings wherever we can um, in the midst of all of this in terms of elevating levels of this dialogue that have uh, also been um, to varying degrees discussed across the country for the last decade. Um, it just so happens that in COVID now, this is sort of a national conversation um, and we're able to talk about it in a national way. Jake, your, your question, I, I, it's almost sort of funny, right? Um, often when we talk about the inherent rights of due process, there's some um, accusation of imbalance, that somehow we're being overly differential to people accused of crime and uh, at the peril of either some nebulous concept called community safety or at uh, the safety of a particularly identified um, victim of a crime. And, I would argue that the that whether it's during this pandemic or prior or post, um, what Sarah said is absolutely right. We have processes in place that are supposed to handle people who are simply accused of a crime differently than people who have been convicted of a crime. Um, and yet we know that that doesn't always happen. But it wasn't as though the current system prior to the pandemic was overly deferential to victims of crime either. Um, uh, it, in fact, the system seems to be overly differential to the system itself. And so um, it's, it's uh, I think there's um, a balance to be had in terms of being concerned for the safety of people. I mean, we're still going to need protective orders during this time. We're still going to need um, uh, to make sure that people who have been the victim of crime get connected to victim services. Um, and so we should be actually talking about that as much. Um, 
And then the last little plug, which is that there's hardly a person who's been accused of a crime who hasn't also been the victim of a crime. And so there isn't a lot of, uh, there isn't sort of this definitive bright line between people who are accused of crime and people who have been the victim of crime. Um, so I want to just, on Sharice's point, that's um, exactly what EJUSA um, has been saying in this great publication they have on doing trauma-informed services, um, the idea that defendants are victims and victims are often defendants. Um, and I'm sorry I lost you guys. Um, I guess what I'll say is that um, this is a place where um, systems want to feed themselves, right? There's a lot of inertia. We should keep going the way we've always been going because that's what we've been doing, right? That's what it's always been. It seems to work so well so far. Um, and that what's going to be, I think, particularly challenging, and it's, I think, true, the smaller the system and the closer the relationships between people who work in a system, is this pressure to just make things work, right? Um, help us out. We're all in this together. We're all on the same team. Um, and to some extent, that's true, right? People work in the same system. We're often neighbors and colleagues and friends. Um, but in criminal justice, by definition, we're not on the same team. And there's a very, very tricky balance in being a good citizen of the court system and being a good advocate. And, and sometimes um, you can't do both at once. And what can be very challenging and very tricky is that there are real dangers here, right? People are dying. And so that's a very big cudgel to use when someone says, well, I don't want to push my client to plead guilty today. I, if they, they can plead guilty today, why can't they get out today? Or, um, you know, I, I want to because next week the witness may be sick. Um, there's going to be a lot of blowback of this is not the time to be partisan. This is not the time to, to you know, insist on these, these things. And it's a tightrope. Uh, and I don't have great answers for it, but I've, I've seen it firsthand after Katrina. I've heard from about after Sandy from other people. And I think that there's a lot of vigilance required um, in role that adaptation for everybody in this process. Great. Um, so we're approaching the hour. Um, I do want to try to get in one more um, very quick question, if we can. Um, I'm just actually going off of that last point you made, Professor Metzger. Um, what, if any, sort of precedents can we look at from the past to inform how we're dealing with um, you know, this kind of unprecedented situation? Um, you know, where, where can we learn from lessons of things that we did well and mistakes that we made that we still have a chance to um, avoid repeating? Well, so bad examples are, are certainly more common than good examples. Um, I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. Um, I, I would say that, you know, in terms of the public health piece, obviously, you know, the flu of 18, 1918 is what people think of. But I think there are some strong analogies to the, to the spread of HIV AIDS in jails um, to the extent that it forced a conversation about health conditions. Um, it forced a conversation about personal space, about privacy, about access to safety in prisons. I think we can and should look to both what worked and did not work in the immediate aftermath of Katrina and other natural disasters. I don't know what happened in California after the campfires, but I know some of the Midwest flooding. Um, Sandy, we've seen other natural disasters before, and we can look to those instances. Um, but I will say that what makes this different than anything other than the flu epidemic of 1918 is that advocates and judges are as at risk right, if they are in courtrooms every day um, of catching it in ways that they weren't capable of catching HIV AIDS, they weren't capable, right, of even when there was um, a drug-resistant strain of TB running through the prisons. Um, so I think we look at lessons from the past, 
but my sense is that we're going to look at those lessons for how we rebuild. I don't know that they're going to be so helpful to us in the moment, but maybe someone else has a better idea. Well, I'm a little depressed by everything we've ever done in the past to try <laughs> and return to some state of normalcy in the aftermath of anything. Um, and Jake, I, when you first asked the question, I thought, can we actually just go back to the very, 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 very beginning and like start over? Um, I think the best we can do in the pretrial context um, is really look at a couple of jurisdictions where they have really tackled this stuff head on in it, way before the pandemic. I'm sorry New York has done what it's done uh, in the dark of night to reverse its bail uh, reform efforts. Um, but if you looked at what the bill was in New York that passed and you look at what New Jersey has done, the issues around speedy trial, discovery, and pretrial justice at the front end of the system, if you combine that with what other states have done with respect to reclassification of charges from felonies down to misdemeanors and misdemeanors into a, some misdemeanors down into a complete decriminalization. Um, uh, I think that there are lessons to be learned in places that are, have tried to, uh, to, to sort of remedy this stuff in the absence of a pandemic or a disease. Um, we haven't done our best work as a country in when we've been responding to a crisis. Yeah, I, I just have one small thing to add and, and that's that, you know, Pam speaking to the spread of HIV AIDS um, in, in prisons, you know, that was one of the major factors that gave rise to the uh, Commission on the Elimination of Prison Rape, right? And the Prison Rape Elimination Act, which is, to my recollection, one of the only pieces of legislation that we have on the federal level that actually um, specifies certain conditions of confinement in order to protect people's health and safety. And so now I think we have another example of something like that, that we could use to a positive end to, you know, reduce overcrowding, to make prisons safer places and arguably where they become um, not just in name only departments of corrections, but actually become rehabilitative places because we now know that we just are not going to be able to continue with the status quo when we're having to manage pandemics like this, which are inevitable in the future. Um, so in that way, I think there is a bit, you know, there, there is a silver lining and an opportunity for reform like we haven't seen before. Great. Well, um, I want to thank all of our panelists for a really um, enlightening discussion. Um, you know, these are obviously very daunting issues um, and serious challenges, but I think kind of having this type of discourse and especially um, a discussion where we can talk about these issues in a way that um, you know, I think you guys just did an amazing job of showing that a lot of what seems like un intangible issues are very real and tangible in ways that we can and should account for. Um, so you know, thank you so much for um, being here today to talk about this um, very important issue. And uh, yeah, it's definitely something we're going to keep working on and talking about. So uh, thank you so much and uh, everyone have a great day. Thanks everybody. Thank you guys. Bye.